You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome back to tfm's books and comics show here for star trek and i am just one of the hosts here matthew rushing and this week uh as he is pretty much every week is chris jones with me as we've got some uh comic reviews to do here in the news yeah hey matthew it's good to be back and i'm glad that we have the final part of the seven of nine comic to talk about you know getting ready to talk about it today, the main thing on my mind is I'm just wondering, you know, how did I end up back here in sick bay? How did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was strange. I I, uh, I I didn't realize how I got there either. But we're we are back um, at in sick bay, of course, uh, and uh, we're going to be covering the. Uh, Seven's Reckoning issue four is it's wrapping up the series. Um, so that's going to be fun. And then, of course, we've got in our feature section, uh, Bruce is back with us as we're continuing our 24th century uh, talk of books where we dive into Titan again. Uh, but this time we're uh, back with Synthesis. So that's going to be a lot of fun. But um, so, Chris, uh, you know, we've been reading this series and, and like issue four is here. We're wrapping it up. Issue three didn't seem to do too much for either of us. So uh, how do you feel like, you know, issue four did with bringing this story to a close? Oh, well, that's a big question. <laughs> um, well, I get paid nothing. So, yeah, you know. I I don't know. Like, there's some important messages and important commentary in issue four of this comic. In terms of it wrapping up the story... I personally, I felt let down at the end, uh, especially the final page, the final bit of dialogue. Mm -hmm. It just didn't feel like the kind of closure that I would expect from something entitled Seven's Reckoning. Although I do understand how it ties into the title, it just felt very weak to me. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you i i didn't feel like this was as strong of a story as i would have thought there would be yeah. for a story about seven coming to a reckoning with her individuality and you know who she is and who basically she wants to be and and i mean coming to a reckoning of you know now living in this uh this new type of life obviously and getting used to starfleet rules and regulations and everything and so um I I do agree. It, it just felt lacking in the story because it it almost it just didn't ever really seem to gel with Seven. Like that, this is a story that we needed to tell for Seven specifically. It I mean, I almost feel like you know, in all honesty, it could have been like a Harry Kim story. You know, because, you know, he's younger, he's an ensign, you know, this kind of story could have, I feel like, happened to him. Uh, it could have happened to many people on Voyager, really. Um, I don't think it necessarily just has to be seven. I, and yeah. I think that's that's what I was kind of hoping for. And, and we just, well, I, I don't know, it just never panned out that yeah, way. Yeah, um, I don't know if I completely agree with that. I agree that it could happen to the other characters. It does feel, though, like the kind of thing Seven might do where, you know, she has this tendency to just Mm -hmm. take charge and go do her own thing, like whatever she feels Mm -hmm. is right in the moment. That was sort of a struggle between her and Janeway throughout the series. So in that respect, I think it does fit her character fairly well. What I didn't really 
understand in the first parts, especially in the maybe the first and second part, is why she was so concerned with the situation of these other people who she had never met before. And I thought that, well, maybe it's mm-hmm. going to come back to the idea that she was part of the collective and then she got her individuality, her freedom. And right, so right. she doesn't want to see other people sort of enslaved in that environment where they have no control over their own lives. And it did come back to that. And she did say that. So it does make sense to me for it to be a seven story. I just feel like the payoff was very low key, Mm -hmm. you know, for what they were setting up. Uh, Yeah, I definitely agree with that wholeheartedly. And I mean, it was interesting here because, you know, we've been dealing with this race that their their whole framework is stories and the stories that they tell and the story that they're involved in. And what I I really kind of took from the, the comic overall, which it had less to do with seven and more just to do thematically was, you know, this idea of being so sold out to a narrative, regardless of what evidence might come against that. Yeah. Right. You know, so, so a, a life narrative, you, you continually live by this, uh, this over, I mean, basically worldview, right? This worldview narrative, they, they have a, a narrative understanding of, of the universe, uh, and they're a part of it and, and whatever, and, and this worldview specifically has them entrenched and they're, pretty antithetical to the idea that anything should get in the way of that, even when faced with evidence to the to the contrary. And and that, you know, I mean, it, it really struck as, a, as obviously a key to our, to our world of too many people kind of living in, in false narratives and or um, being willing to believe narratives without any real true good evidence. So yeah. I, I like that. I thought that was really good good but again that didn't quite have anything to do with seven so it's there's there's a a juxtaposition here for me i don't really love this as a seven story Mm. um all but i i really thought that the narrative thought and and train of thought that we were on with the, the alien species was really fascinating um and you know classic star trek in that way yeah 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 the story is more about the alien species here, and Seven has been injected into it, I think because if it's a Voyager comic, her connection back to the collective is sort of the catalyst for telling a story about another species that's being oppressed in some way. Uh, But as an individual Seven story, she... I was going to say she's not like at the center of the story, but she is at the center of the story, visually anyway, in the comic, mm-hmm. but she's not at the center of the story in terms of the actual story itself. I think that's probably what we both feel. The You know, what you said about the false narratives, that's what I took from it as well. And maybe in a timely way, there are people who live in these false narratives their whole lives because they're indoctrinated into something early on you know, when they're young. And so they just always believe that. And then there are people who are led astray by false narratives and get lost in it. And we see that in the world today Mm -hmm. as well. So I feel a bit like the social commentary element of this comic may be about the current world, specifically, not just about, you know, human nature in general. And then the one thing that caught my attention was Septa, who's like the, the grand leader, saying that we have reached the end of this narrative and it is time for us to return to our previous sojourn. And in one of the earlier comics, you know, they talked about how the narratives work in their society. And so Septa saying, we've reached the end of this narrative. It's like, this story's over. Now we go back to the other one. And that made me think about the current situation in the world, uh, specifically in the U.S., and how there are a lot of people who do believe like, okay, we've reached the end of that narrative, and now we're just going to go back. And the world isn't really that simple, and only parts of that narrative maybe have reached some sort of conclusion, but other parts, other threads of that plot 
are ongoing. And I don't know if that was the intention in the writing, but that certainly stood out to me. Well, and and it's also fascinating to me as well, because, you know, this really seems to be a a story of, you know, free speech, too, Mm -hmm. because, you know, here um, we see that anything that challenges the narrative uh, in a way that those in power don't like is shut down. And I mean, I I can't think of a, a bigger issue, you know, I mean, the answer to speech you don't like is not shutting it down. It's more speech to explain why that speech isn't well, correct. It's dialogue. Right? You know, like that, that's the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, um, and this is the thing I think that um, is really frustrating uh, that we see in our world. And, and it's obviously really frustrating for the story here. And it, it's something that seven is, is definitely having a hard time with, which is, realizing you know this she can't rectify just this moment as to you know if we believe something to be better why wouldn't it be better for everyone which you know is is a good and interesting star trek story Mm -hmm. you know um and and it makes for great i think philosophical conversation yeah uh, as to to why you know we we wouldn't want to like help people see it if something we you know truly better we think it's better for these reasons like again why wouldn't even just have an, a dialogue about that so it it is i mean there's some there's some fascinating stuff here i think um thematically but it's it's mostly divorced from seven which is yeah. is strange yeah yeah it is and even in this one you know the stuff you were just talking about right there you know, Janeway is like the steady hand through the end of the story where she's trying to ground the situation mm-hmm. and ground Seven in her role as a Starfleet crew member. And she brings up the prime directive, which I think wouldn't really apply in the situation. But her point about letting other cultures develop on their own course is why she brought it up. And that's what Seven is struggling with. And of course, is what you're talking about there. So... I kind of wonder, uh, you know, since we've kind of reached the end of this series, you know, if you were going to to rate the comic, you know, if since we've read the whole series now, wh- where do you think you'd go with this one? Okay, you know, rating comics is is difficult. I have two thoughts on this one. If I'm rating it as a comic, I'm just looking at the artwork. I'm looking at the voice in the writing. I thought that the characters' voices were very well written. And, you know, Janeway was true to herself here. I would probably give it maybe three out of four strange tiny statues. But if I'm rating the story itself and how satisfied I feel, I probably drop it down to two out of four. Yeah, that's a I think that's good, you know, because for me overall, I I think this this comic I I was out of five is is, you know, two and a half out of five mm-hmm. you know it, there's some some good things in there but unfortunately i feel like it lives it doesn't live up to the promise to which the comet yeah seems that's to make the at key the beginning which yeah. is to be really about seven yeah so, that's the key um so yeah chris i mean really fun of course the fact that we got a chance to uh you know talk through this and very excited you know now to dive into our feature with bruce as we talk about titan synthesis yeah great to have bruce back on this week, we, we had mentioned this uh, a few weeks back, that this was going to be happening, and really excited to welcome back the one, the only, the incredible, nay, should I say, wonderful, Bruce Gibson. Wow, you got that all correct. Very good, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be 20 bucks. <laughs> i'll throw another five in because you did it so well <laughs> oh man that's great that's great well no i'm i'm so excited that uh you're going to be back here with us uh and you're going to be talking through we're going to be uh looking at uh you and dan had been doing the 24th century books and going through that whole series all the ones that we hadn't covered and you had started um all the way back from destiny and and moving forward, I mean, guys, I, I think you even did before that, didn't you? Because you started yeah. with a Time 2 series, right? Oh, gosh, yeah, we did. We started with a Time 2 series, and we just kept going from there. I mean, we were actually just going to do a Time 2, and then we thought, well, let's just keep going. And that's what we did. 
Well, and part of that is there were so many great books in that era, too. I mean, I, to me, that's what I kind of consider the I Ching of Star Trek books, really. It just it really took off then. Uh, and part of that is because, you know, Nemesis, they weren't going to do any more films. And so they pretty much had carte blanche to do whatever they want. So uh, it was pretty great. And so I'm really excited to be continuing this with you. So glad to have you back. So we're going to be doing this. Uh, Bruce and I also have a few surprises. Uh, we're going to we're going to work in another series as well. Uh, but basically, this just means you're going to be getting more Literary Treks episodes. Chris and I will still be doing some. Bruce and I are going to do some. And uh, this will allow you guys to have just more opportunity to enjoy Literary Treks. So um, this week, our book that we're covering, which is Titan Synthesis, which is really exciting to me because, you know, obviously, uh, Bruce, we both just read um, the brand new book by James Swallow, uh, where he was writing the Titan now in canon. And um, so it was really fun to come back to a James Swallow Titan book and dive back into that. And so I was going to ask you, before we even kind of dive into the book, can you kind of sum up at all where titan is at this point as we reach this book because this one is right after destiny if i'm not mistaken right yeah that's right well it's okay so there was destiny and then we had another book after that oh under the torrent Uh, or over the torrent sea right over the torrent sea which i think was the last book that dan and i did on literary tracks Yes, yes. So so they, they're still, I mean, at this point, we're still kind of reeling with everything that's happened in the Destiny trilogy, um, and it's still obviously very fresh on the mind, which is fascinating because this book really is all about AI and its potential, what it can do, what it maybe can't do, what are its limitations, and all of that. And so I found it really fascinating that the writers here, and, and James specifically, decided to really challenge the Titan crew with something that I think, you know, for them is frightening because they've had this massive experience with the Borg. And now, I mean, I would say this book finally puts to test all of the things I've thought of with AI and Star Trek in this story. It does. And you know, if anything, I was reading this, I was like, you know, James Swallow is a smart guy, but now I really think he's a smart guy. Because, I mean, this is just very deep and in-depth, and I think this probably tackles AI more so than any other Star Trek book I've read. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, so one of the things that, that this book really brought to mind, you know, obviously we've dealt with the ideas of the Borg, and, and, and they're still reeling from that, but... You know, when we think about how smart Star Trek computers are, you know, I mean, they even bring up the fact in this book that Star Trek computers have basically been held back from becoming sentient, like, because they're so advanced, like, it could happen. And it, of course, it does happen in this book to where the point where Titan's main computer becomes a person by confluence of events. And so, to me, it was fascinating because, you know, we see, like, holograms, uh, obviously, you know, we've seen AI with data, and even the idea of, of these these super smart computers, like a ship's computer is, like, we really realize how, you know, Star Trek has always kind of been on the edge of this happening. And I thought it was interesting because James just finally deals with it straight up like where we are in star trek and and i guess the one i don't know if you call it like the tipping point or the danger zone here for where our technology can go if we don't actually you know rein it in well you think about even in the original series the earlier earliest series that was made the computer does talk. I mean, there are voice commands and it relays information back to you. And we do that now on our phones. You know, I have an iPhone and I say, you know, Hey Siri. Okay, good. Oh wait, it's trying to, it's waiting for a question for me now, but (laughs) you know, I mean, and we're in the early part of the 21st century 
And we already have that. And there's a part of me that thinks with Siri and Alexa and all these things that we have, you know, at some point, what will it be like in 200, 300 years? Is it just something that responds to our commands or does it take on its own type of life? And it makes so much sense. If you think of it in that context of where we are today and where we could be in a few hundred years, you'd almost have to hold the technology back because it could become a sentient being. And then, you know, you would have to make it free. It wouldn't be under your command anymore. And which is also a whole nother parallel of, well, does the machinery become slaves to the human race? At that point, and us holding it back, is that the right moral thing to do or not? Yeah, you know, what's what's really fascinating to me uh, is that this book came out the same year that the movie Her did. And I don't know if you ever saw that with Joaquin Phoenix and um, Scarlett Johansson as the voice of the technology. But I know of the movie. I can't remember if I've seen it, though. So, but the the whole point of that technology is, or that movie is that he he falls in love with his phone, you know his his operating system. But the operating system gets to the point where she's transcended what it, you know the ability to to really give him what he needs. One because she's not a physical being whatsoever, and so there's never any of that type of intimacy. But even intellectually. She surpasses him because she's uh, has the ability to think and comprehend and all of these different things in a in a way that human beings can't. You know, uh, she is interfacing with so much information that you know a, a human being doesn't have that ability. And so I just thought it was really interesting that we're kind of playing with this idea of the Titan as a person, and you know it it takes the form of minuet, which reminded me so much of that idea of this movie her where that same kind of thing almost happens except that you know it never has a holographic presence so it it was just really interesting that in culture at the time you're dealing with this question of like what happens if technology becomes so advanced that you could like have a relationship with your phone you know because the person could give you that intellectual stimuli that you need and and like you said here like this is the the thing that star trek is is always skirted the issue of and this book just kind of takes head on is well if your ai can become sentient like is it wrong to not make it sent all of it sentient? Is it is it right to kind of hold it back? And then like you're dealing with all these really crazy ethical questions, which, you know, I don't really know any of the answers to. And I think what was fascinating about this book is that James basically, I think, pushes it as far as it can go without it becoming to the point where you'd be like, well, you you kind of ruin the magic, you know, like Star Trek is is meant to be entertainment and, and too. Um, and if you push this question too far, it's like you, you start to get a little bit like uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what's interesting too, is what you were saying about, you know, evolving we're in Star Trek, always meeting other races and wanting them and encouraging them to evolve. We encourage data to evolve. We've encouraged the, you know, the AIs in this book to evolve, except we hold back the creations that we made from evolving. So it's like those things that we didn't create or in control of, we want to evolve, but those that we do create, we hold back. I mean, if you think about the ship, the ship wants to evolve, but we have prevented it, meaning Starfleet has. Yeah. And, you know, know, the whole minuet thing you would think that Riker would fall in love again with Minuet because he's in love with his ship. And I think there's a part of them that kind of <laughs> wanted to, <laughs> but you know, I mean, he's in love with Deanna Troy, of course, but that would be an interesting situation too. But the, the character, I just want to s- specify he one really thing. He really loves his ship. He really loves the, the ship, but uh, he, you know, they, they don't go there. You know, James Swallow doesn't go there with Minuet. Minuet is really not a character in this book. The ship is. Right. The ship is yeah. just using the image of Minuet. 
Well, and, and what's so fascinating is it also kind of plays with the ideas that you saw in the uh, obviously the comic series and and of course the um, the manga movie with ghosts in the shell, you know, and like consciousness that is there, uh, but it it needs to be housed in something. You know, we see that kind of play out with Titan and as well as with the sentries that we have and. Um, We'll talk about them in a second, but, you know, one of the things I thought was so interesting is that the, the I really love the argument that uh, White, Blue, and Veil vale have because they both have really valid points. And, that, and James does a great job of showing both sides of the argument here, but she does a very good job of explaining, you know, the worry that humanity has because you you you've got V'ger or the Daystrom's M5 or uh, you know the Moriarty hologram and like the list just keeps going on and on of like things that have happened which have turned very badly for humanity right and so you know and and James has even talked about this uh before with us with this idea of like you know we we always see you know sci-fi go to basically it's going to turn into skynet and the point is it doesn't always have to happen right and and so i think this is his his version of that right things can go really wrong but they could also go really right yeah i i think if something goes wrong it doesn't mean we can't get it right the next time not every situation an ai is going to go wrong or be dangerous we just maybe have to be cautious with it um, even when you look at Picard and, you know, the, the synths and, and what's happened there, of course, someone obviously messed with them and did something to them. But, uh, you know, it, it's always something new that we have to be careful and take small steps and letting it to evolve and see what direction it's going to go. So you're saying but we need baby steps? We need baby steps. Okay. Synth. Well, AI baby steps. AI baby steps. <laughs> you know, one of the things that we see, though, with the AI here is that we have this whole other side because we run into this group of sentient machines known as the sentries. And they've been on this mission and they have this inability to transcend their programming and yet they have their emotions. And what I love, um, you know, this this question of like, you know, what they would be without the emotions and one of them tells Tuvok, we would simply be machinery. And to me, it was just a really interesting question then about are in, in some ways, is that an answer to the question of like, what does it take to be sentient in that, in that you need emotion? You know, it's not just cold, hard logic, right? Um, you know, even Vulcans with all their logic still have emotion. And, and so that, and, and that emotion then is something that, transforms us because of the way it shapes our experiences too so i thought that was really really interesting and i they they you know james really created i thought really interesting new race here with the sentries uh and you know i think took them in a way that i didn't necessarily expect i've, I've read this book before but you know even rereading it after all these years um i think he does such a great job of giving us uh, a really complicated and nuanced race of beings um and especially even just you know the way they've had to kind of engineer themselves throughout the years to continue on this mission and that it's created this much more uh machine they still have machine like thoughts and and understanding of the world and yet, again, it's much more nuanced because they have emotion as well. But they also have a one-track mind because they were programmed yeah. <laughs> to do one thing. So it, it's an odd situation to me that they just seem to have one goal, one-track mind of what they're doing, and that is you know, to fight the null, and we'll get to that, of course. But where do the emotions come in? Because don't emotions then create certain ambitions and wanting to do something different and not just always do the one thing that you've been programmed to do? I mean, I think that's a really great question. And I would, I would say that one of the things that I kind of saw that went along with the centuries that 
kind of kept them from being able to do that was that they weren't grounded in the truth. The truth of their existence was is that they did not create themselves, that they had been created, that they had a purpose in that creation, and therefore they had locked themselves into not being able to transcend their programming because they had told themselves that they had created themselves. And therefore, because of that truth not being there, they they would never be able to get over the hump, you know? Like, and, and this was really interesting to me because in the end, it really showed the need to be grounded in the truth, to truly know what our history is, you know, because those foundational truths we build our lives on are the keys of where we can go, you know, and how we can evolve, right? And so they don't have a true understanding of, of what their history is, what their existence is, and that has, has stymied them and not being able to evolve, really. Well, and it reminds me, of the uh, four-issue Voyager comic that just released its last issue this past month, and that's Seven's Reckoning. And it's the same thing there. There's an alien race that doesn't really know its true history or has been lied to about its history, and they've been playing out a certain way because of what they believe their history was. And now it comes into question as to whether that was really true or not. What is the truth? Some believe one way, some believe in the other. And now you've got this machinery, which is reacting the same way as an alien sentient being would react. And it's, you know, this is the history that has been formed. This is their perception of reality. And so they're playing out that reality. And of course, in typical Star Trek ways, we have to come in and kind of upset that and show them maybe what the truth is or, or have them question it or, or take it into a different direction and, and how they perceive things. But, you know, the, this machinery also appears differently. They don't look the same all the time. Their souls, I guess you could say, can take parts in an other machinery that's around. So they've evolved beyond their bodies. They're really souls. They're souls that really don't have a specific body to them. Yeah, I, I love that, again, because it, it kind of plays into that whole idea of, of the same thing we see with the Titan, where you just, it, it's the ghost in the shell, right? Like this, this ability to inhabit these, these other places and these other, uh, you know, machines. And, and in the end, one of the things that they do want is the ability to be able to have a more permanent form and a form that allows them to, 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 in, in in many ways, they they want that synthesis of uh, what you see uh, Titan be able to have, you know the the form that they could transform into anything. But um, and and wow, can you imagine all of these things with you know mobile emitters? You know, <laughs> um, right. you know. But that's the I, mean, I really think again, James is getting so deep here of what it like like reality like what is reality for them but what i find most interesting is that their reality is hampered and their ability to evolve is stymied because they don't know the truth of their existence and and once they know the truth it's really troy who's help, help, kind of helped them be able to see look you have this programming you have this uh you know directive you can complete that directive and then you get to uh, figure out what you want to do next then your path is open you know um and but it's only really by kind of knowing the truth and having it set them free that they have that ability to realize yeah we can complete our programming because beforehand too them not knowing the truth of who they are has kept them from truly completing their mission because their mission is all they have. At, that is their existence, right? Um, and again, Troy helps them see, like, no, you can 
complete the programming you were given by this race years and years and you know however many eons ago um and then you can forge a new path and i it's really really fascinating but then if you complete the programming and to your point eons and eons ago they've been doing the same thing for so long do they really want to complete the programming yes yeah because that's their purpose and yep. if you complete it, then the purpose is taken away. So what is their purpose in life? Do they want to continue on? Do they want to do something different? Mm-hmm. They don't know how to think in that manner. Yeah. They won't know how to think, okay, what now? What do we do now? Like, hey, what are our hopes and dreams? What do we want different in life? They've mm-hmm. never had to think like that. I mean, this this book actually really calls for a sequel to it. <laughs> you know? I, to, I I'd agree. love to go back and see what yeah. happens to them. No, I mean, because you're absolutely right. You know, what we're drilling down to in the idea of like sentience here is that whole thought process of, you know, being able to find meaning and purpose and and determine what that is for you, right? Um, And the fact that can they do that? And it is really, is a big, really, it is a really big question. And like you said, we we kind of see them begin to do that, but I would love to see this followed up on it, it is it, because it, it's, there's so much depth to this. Um, w- one of the other really interesting things in the book, and, and it really, there's a lot of prejudice and bias in this book from both sides. Um, and I was like, there's a lot of pride and prejudice going on here. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, you know, the sentries, they look down on the organics. The Starfleet crew are kind of worried about the sentries in light of their experience with the Borg. And I really thought that this was interesting because it goes to show how difficult it can be to trust people. And in the end, you know, I would say that this this whole section, this idea of like this this kind of this pride and this prejudice that they both have, it all comes down to them learning to trust one another, uh, and especially how difficult that can be when our experiences show us how badly it can go. I mean, like Tuvok even says in the book that we cannot allow our past experiences with other machine life forms to color our interactions with these AIs and how difficult that is. Like, so good because what he's saying is is that just because somebody seems similar to somebody that you've met before, you cannot judge them until you get to really truly know them. And a perfect message for these days. Absolutely. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about baby steps. You can't just judge from the one experience. You need to let the other experience or the other AI evolve and see where that's going to go. And in addition to that, when meeting something like this, when meeting an AI or these sentries, you can't just assume that they're going to be like the Borg. It's not always going to be the same. I mean, you can look at these things and know that they're not Borg. I mean, Borg is a blend between, you know, organic life and these machinery put together and to assimilate. And this technology is not looking to assimilate. And so, yeah, you do have to go in there and you have to always remind yourself of those. It's so easy as humans or Vulcans or whatever to have those prejudices at first, but you have to recognize it. You have to realize, you know, this other being reminds me of this, but they're not that. But it's okay to go in there and be a little skeptical and look at it and go, well, just, you know, let me make sure. But don't close the door on it because you'll never move forward and discover something new and help somebody else out if you're just always assuming something is the way you think it's going to be. You need to find out what it's going to be. Yeah, I really like that, Bruce, because it, it really reminds me of what Riker says to Vale. And he said, you know, everything that happened to the Federation, our showdown with the Borg, everything and everyone we lost, all that does not change our ideals. It does not change who we are and why we're out here. And that really struck me 
because I feel as though, you know, that's obviously the the hallmark of Star Trek, right? Is to is to judge everyone by their own actions. Uh and and it's such a message that you know, it, it as I was reading that I was thinking how sad it is that I feel like our world has just lost that ability. Like we just start painting with these very broad broad brush strokes and Anybody who kind of fits in any kind of category, we just label them and then it allows us to treat them in a certain way. And that's exactly what, you know, Riker and, and Tuvok here are saying is that, like, we can't do that um, because then we would, as Riker says, we would not be living up to our ideals. And that becomes an issue. And I just thought that was really good. I mean, that's why Starfleet is out there. You know, exploring strange new worlds, new civilizations. I mean, we could just sit at home, but it's about learning. It's discovering something more. And and by learning and discovering more, you learn and discover more about yourself. And this is the opportunity to do that where the centuries only have that one track mind. So in a lot of ways, once they complete their goal, now they have the opportunity to do such things and they can't judge every being that they meet and think it's going to be like the Titan crew either, you know? So they have to keep that in mind too, but that's how we evolve. And yeah, this does parallel a lot of things in our society today. It feels like it is becoming so black and white and, and right or wrong or left and right or whatever. And it's, it's more complex than that. There's not categories. Everything's so different and you need to just, learn what that thing is and appreciate the differences and learn about yourself from those differences and understand why people are the way they are based on what their experiences are. And and you don't know where they're coming from unless you talk to them. And that's the thing that we, you know, learn from Star Trek. That's what it's all about. It's getting to know the other person and learning from them and them learning from you. It's self-discovery. That's why Star Trek Discovery is such a great title. That could apply to any Star Trek series. <laughs> Getting to know you. Anyway, um, it's funny because Deanna says that same kind of thing, that the Avatar, that Titan, was the best of both of them. You know, the best of the organics, the best of the centuries, that she was that synthesis of both of us. And in the end, you know, isn't that the beauty of what Star Trek is meant to be, which is that we we take us all together and we make something beautiful out of it, right? You know, we we the Federation is is a hodgepodge of of people from thousands of different worlds that all believe totally, you know, crazy things compared to the other, and yet they find a way to learn from one another and work together to create something beautiful. You know, it, it's kind of the promise of what America is supposed to be, right? You know, just, just speaking of the country we live, that's what it's meant to be, which is the synthesis of all of us together creating something together. And I really liked the way that, that Tro- Troy puts that, because obviously it's the title of the book, which is always fun. Um, but it is the truth of, like, w- the synthesis. We're, we're supposed to bring ourselves together and learn from one another and i think you know that's kind of something that i saw with the story with uh one of the centuries white blue you know this whole idea of like kind of getting to know your quote-unquote enemy and he even admits this of having made errors in dealing with the federation because he just applied his own cultural standards to an alien society and it was incorrect and what that really was getting at is, to me, it's like, we have to get to know one another. You know, we're, we're all going to come at things from our own prejudices, our own biases. And the whole point uh, is to try and put those aside and get to know the actual person. And then the because the only true way to judge people is by their actions. It is, the only true way to judge people is by what they do, not what they say. And the best way to be able to do that is to truly get to know people. Um, and I, I thought that that was, I really liked that theme here in this book. 
Yeah, white blue is moving a little too fast in this relationship, <laughs> you know, making himself a little too comfortable. But, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, he perceives how he would interact with someone or how he would expect someone to interact with him. So when he gets with the ship and with this crew, he's trying to help, but it's almost like he's helping too much because they're not ready for that or that's going beyond the boundaries you know that he's crossed the line and i mean that's why we had this avatar because once he tapped into the ship he thought oh well here i'll help the ship become more sentient and you know i'll I'll give the ship that ability i mean wouldn't everybody want that don't you crew want that it's like no you didn't ask us that you we purposely were holding it back which is such a hard conversation how do you tell this this being that we're holding this other being as it perceives back you know it's like it almost would think that white blue would think that they're evil you know holding the ship back but well and and i think you know that's that's the thing like one of the one of the most important aspects of this is that until you truly get to know somebody and kind of put yourself in their shoes it's difficult to be able to understand what their reasoning for something might be. And that's what we see, you know, the Federation and the centuries doing throughout this story, which is wrestling with this. And obviously it's very difficult because they come at it with such amazing prejudices against one another. And they, they one, they have to overcome those, but two, then they truly have to work to understand one another um, and where, e- you know, each other is coming from. And, um, you know, I, I think what's great about the book is the way that, you know, they, they are obviously able to do that in the story. Um, and, and part of that is because they have to put aside those biases and at the same time, you know, they have to learn to um, that there's a moment, there's a leap of faith when you trust, right? You know, in Man of Steel, the priest says that to, to Clark Kent. He's like, you know, when it comes to trust, there's a leap of faith, you know, and, and somebody has to take that leap of faith first. And then the trust part comes later, you know, uh, but it's by taking that leap of faith. And I think what's beautiful here is that. We see these these characters, the Federation and the centuries, uh, you know, really struggling with this idea of taking that leap of faith. But once they finally do, they're able to forge uh, a relationship um, and they're able to get to know each other much better. Um, And part of that is because they they can begin then to also see one another for who they truly are. Well, and there's some sentries that more easily accept our Starfleet crew than others. It takes others quite a while. And some don't even really come around at the end. And some of them die in, you know, the battle with the null, but uh, it takes some people longer than others. And it also takes, you know, one to convince the other that, you know, these Starfleet crew people, these, humans and Vulcans and such are not bad people. And there's some significance to them. They're just not these cogs in the machine. They, you know, they're, they're life just like they think they themselves are. So it takes some of the centuries to convince the other centuries. And then some of the centuries don't believe or don't come around to that. Uh, Well, that's the complexity of any society. Well, and and like you said too, one of the most interesting things is them, the centuries themselves, realizing that they do have to evolve, otherwise they're they're going to die. And part of that is this kind of there's a lot of unintended consequences that have happened in this story, because the creators of the centuries years ago had they their desire had been to create gateways, much like we've seen in Star Trek before. And in doing so, they they opened up space to the null. And so by trying to create something, they they have this consequence of, of accidentally 
opening space to the null. And at the same time, the Sentry's FTL drives also are continuing to weaken this area of space. And and it really, you know, it, it kind of brought to mind to me, uh, especially, you know, from the creators of the Sentries, it's like that whole Jurassic Park thing, you know, where Malcolm's like, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Yeah, I you love know? that line. <laughs> and it's it's very true here because that's exactly what happens. Their desire is not necessarily a bad one, but their experimentation, and I, I think this goes all the way back with, you know, the whole idea of like, you know, creating AIs and everything and the dangers involved around there. Like we have to constantly be aware of the repercussions um, of what could happen with the creations that we're making um, and the good and bad ramifications as much as possible that could happen with that. And so I thought that was, again, this book has got so many deep themes in it, but this is another huge one. And not only that, but it seems like AIs always seem to outlive their creators. And that's what happens here because those beings that created this, these gateways aren't around anymore. And yet the AIs, the sentries continue the fight, continue to do what their programming says. And, you know, I, I, we don't really know the whole story about why they created the gateways or what went wrong. I mean, obviously it let the null out, but you can't fault them for trying to, create new ways to travel or to explore new things. I mean, that's what we do as Starfleet. I keep referring to Starfleet as we. Like, I feel like we're part of Starfleet, right? I mean, we do Star Trek podcasts. Aren't we Starfleet? I, I feel like we are. <laughs> but, you know, I, but I, I think it's, it's interesting because what it, it brings to mind is obviously the, the absolute importance for us then to you know, to, to, to plan for the future, to plan well, um, and to understand how we live in the present and will impact the future. Um, and again, I think rightly so, it does mean that we must be aware of what we're creating and how it could impact our present as well as our future. You know, um, I, I kind of think of, you know, just as an example, you know, I don't think that anybody ever thought about and, and you know, having I, the, the documentary, The Social Dilemma, you know, nobody thought about the implications of creating the technologies we have for social media, right? Um, they, they weren't trying to do anything bad. They were just trying to create a way for people to be able to communicate with one another and, and all those type of things. Uh, and yet there have been a ton of unintended consequences to that because, you know, nobody really did sit down and think about, well, well I based, in some ways, what's the worst case scenario, you know? Um, and but having never done that, you may yeah. not have any idea what the exactly. worst case scenario is. Exactly. So I think what it shows is the complexity, you know, of 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 all of these types of things. So I, to me, it's just really fascinating. Um, I but you know, one of the things I think before we kind of uh, you know talk about any ratings, Bruce, I'm really interested in what you thought of the null, um, because this is the thing to which we're kind of fighting the whole time. Yeah, I'm really trying to get to understand what that the null is <laughs> i mean it's obviously this being that is crossing through the subspace and these dimensions and i'm i don't really know what its purpose is what it's trying to achieve by just going through and trying to destroy things um i did message with james swallow uh yesterday kind of about the null and I also found out, not through him, but I questioned him on this later, that he used the Null in some of his Doctor Who stories. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think it was in two of them. But I asked him about it, and he said that one reason he used it is because the Null can go through subspace, so it could cross universes. Mm -hmm. And he also thinks the name is cool. So <laughs> that's another reason he went with the Null in Doctor Who. 
but uh, I, you know, I'd like to know more about it. It was almost like that's the bad guy of this, the, the, the story. So it's like one dimensional. Cause we don't really get to know the null. We just know it's destroying everything. Yeah. I don't know. I, I wonder how James would feel about this and I probably will end up asking him or maybe if he listens, he can let us know, but the null, you know, it's this, this thing of insati- insatiable hunger, right? Like it's, it's desire is just to continue to feed. Right. And there's a part of me that wonders if that is just basically meant to be metaphorical, which is the insatiable desire of exploration, the insatiable desire of of creation that we have as beings can have a dark side to it. And I I wonder if that has anything to do with the null itself and, and what it means for the story uh, and the fact that I think in many ways we are constantly then having to fight against that, right? This this kind of uh, insatiable appetite that if does run rampant, it can completely destroy everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm starting to wonder now too if the null, to your point, has some kind of hunger and came through subspace with that hunger and would have left. But then when it's being attacked by the sentries, now it's in fighting mode. And all it's ever known about the sentries is once it comes through, it wants to destroy. And it doesn't think anything beyond that. It's almost like coming to a hornet's nest and you're, you know, just going to, you know, I guess run away from the hornets or fight them or whatever, but you're not going to really think anything of it except that, oh, these are dangerous and I've got to do something about it. So I'm going to destroy them. Yeah, I mean, I think it is this book has so many thematical layers to it, which is one of the things I think I loved about it. And, you know, again, just the fact that, you know, you could take this villain as as just being one-dimensional, but I do think that James is using it to say something more. And it it almost reminds me of two, uh, you know, and and maybe, maybe this isn't the case, but I remember in... Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and you know, Spalco is wanting to know more, right? Like she just continually wants to know more. Uh, and then, you know, Indy knows at that moment, at the end of the movie, to get out of there. You know, he he realizes that there is a point to which knowing more isn't always better. You know, um, sometimes enough is enough. And I, I, again, I kind of wonder if, you know, the Null has this sensational desire, this appetite that can never be filled, that would just basically continue to eat everything in its path, you know, that is there a point when enough is enough? And, and how do we figure out when that is? You know, it's a really good question. It's a really philosophical question, too. So, uh, but it's perfect for Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what it's all about, right? <laughs> So, Bruce, I'm really fascinated to see um, what you end up rating then Titan Synthesis. That's a very good question. So this is the second time I've read it. The first time was when it first came out, and now this time. And I think I liked it even more this time than I did the first time. Uh, and for, and you know, I'm even liking it more than that we're talking through it. See, the first time I read it, I didn't get to talk to anybody about it. And now hearing what your thoughts are and, and hearing what you've had to say and then gets me thinking about things. That's what really what I love about Star Trek when it's on its best. So I'm going to say this is on its best. I'm going to say that I'm going to give this one, uh, because first of all, I love seeing the Titan crew. I love playing in this continuity. Uh, and I love the writing of James Swallow. And I also like how uh, White Blue continues on with the crew. He joins the Titan crew and we'll see White Blue in future Titan novels. So that's pretty cool, too. So everything that we've just said, I'm going to give this 4.75 out of 5 
sentries who get along with the Titan crew, but that one quarter sentry just cannot seem to get along. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I am right there with you. I you know I haven't read this book since it came out in 2013, and I I found myself I think probably like it even more now. And I'd just give this a straight up five out of five planet sized machines uh, because I, I couldn't find anything I didn't like about it. Like there's literally nothing in this book there. I, I thought to myself, eh. I, I really enjoyed the way all the plot lines really work together. I thought it was really interesting um, and really fun to read. And, you know, again, my favorite thing is when something really is making me think thematically uh, and, and James does not hold back uh, with the, th- the thematic elements in, in this book. So I, I really loved it. And the cover makes it look like it's a romance novel. It does kind of make it look like a Harlequin romance novel. So uh, <laughs> I would I would definitely give the stamp of approval to the cover. Yes, even though the cover really is not what's inside the book. <laughs> no, not at all. So Matt... It was great being back here on Literary Tracks. I've been listening since episode one. Of course, then I became one of the co-hosts for a while. And now here I'm back doing some more books with you. And I have to say, you've done a very good job keeping the place clean. Well, I appreciate it, Bruce. You know, um, it's uh, it's been easy. You know, I, I've got some help. You know, Chris helps out as well. And, uh, you know, we, we hired uh, White Blue. He's really good at keeping things clean around here. So um, and it gave him a purpose. So uh, <laughs> but I also uh, see that. I also see that Dayton is still passed out in the green room, so that's pretty cool, too. Well, I mean, you know, I, I just didn't have the heart to kick him out. You know, it's Dayton. He's been there right. for eons now. So, um, it smells like it, too. <laughs> we love you, Dayton. But uh, we're really... Thank you guys so much for listening to us. Of course, um, you know, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so make sure you're subscribed, uh, and you'll get the podcast as soon as it drops. Uh, you can give us a star rating review over there on Apple Podcasts, and that really does help the show grow. I want to say a huge thank you to our associate producers, Greg Rosier and Casey Petit for their support of the TFM network as well as literary tracks. Now they do that through Patreon and Patreon is the place where if you love what we do here on TFM, we really need your help. Uh, Honestly, it's a huge network and there's no way that we can do it without your support. So go over to patreon.com slash track FM. You can see how you can be part of the team. Every little bit helps, but in the end, um, we just need your support. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm. Of course, you could find us on the Babel Conference there uh, over on Facebook. We're on Twitter at trekfm, and we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find us on Instagram at trekfm. Uh, and uh, if you would like to contact us, you can go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose literary tracks, and that comes to us. Uh, and of course, we've got the Goodreads group that you could find, the Literary Trucks Goodreads group. Uh, just answer the questions and click join the group. Uh, and now, Bruce, uh, if people did want to catch up with you uh, and see what you've got going on, where can they find you? Well, I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex and Instagram at just Admiral Rex, no underscore there. And uh, I'm also occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm going to be on an upcoming episode here soon. And uh, then, of course, I'm with Dan Gunther doing Positively Trek, where we do Star Trek news, uh, episode reviews, and, of course, books and comics over there, too. So we continue that uh, those kind of reviews because there's so many books to cover and comics. There's there's more than enough to go around. And recently we had Adil Hussein, who plays Lieutenant Sahil from Discovery Season 3. He was on our show, and we've had a lot of good feedback on that. And so I think that's where I am. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> Well, you could find me all over the place here on the network, of course, doing the 602 Club, which is our whole other side of the network. We've got the 602 Club show where we're talking about all of the fandoms we love. Of course, right now we've got John Mills and I doing Snyder Cuts there, too, where we're covering all of the directorial work of Zack Snyder as we lead up to his Justice League. You can also find me doing The Orb with Chris Jones, where we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. 
And then I'm over on the Nerd Party Network doing a couple of shows. One is called Aggressive Negotiations. John Mills and I are talking about Star Wars each and every week. And then you could find me doing Outposts, where Dre Kaufman and I are wrapping up our walk through the entire Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And of course, you could find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 But we want to say thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.